If you have a Bible, you can open it to Romans chapter number 6. Romans chapter number 6. I feel like it has been forever since I've been in here on a Wednesday night. Uh, so certainly glad to be back to a, a little bit of normalcy. Um, last time I was, I was here teaching, I think we were somewhere in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, then we uh, made our way uh, through Mark and uh, we made our way into Romans and uh, we will soon, uh, soon end our time in Romans as well. But before we do, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Romans chapter 6 tonight. I am very appreciative. I think uh, uh, Ron McCulley did a great job several weeks ago uh, taking taking care of my of my spot since we were out uh, on vacation. We always enjoy that time together. I had to do a wedding uh, on the coast, and so we were able to slide away for a few days before that and go to the beach and then drive over to the coast uh, Picayune area and do a wedding and then get back. And then uh, certainly appreciate Bird and those who shared from uh, from Surf Saltillo last week. Um, thankful for that and uh, thankful just to have people who can step in and, and do those things when we're gone. I had the privilege to speak at a youth camp in, uh, in Kosciuszko. I don't know if any of you ever went to Central Hills. Um, it's one of our uh, Southern Baptist camps uh, that, that's put on every single year, but they do a couple of youth camps and a couple of children's camps and some family camps. Uh, but anyway, apparently they couldn't find anybody to do their first youth camp, and so uh, they kept scraping and they found me. And so uh, anyway... Had a good time out there uh, hanging out with them. And so anyway, while I was out, in my absence, I appreciate those uh, who stepped up and took care of uh, what, what happens here. And so thankful for those that uh, can be trusted to do those things uh, and, and faithful members here at our church. So anyway, a lot of reading has happened since then. A lot of things we could be discussing in the book of Romans. Uh, if you've been reading with us, in case you don't know, on Wednesday nights, we like to take something from our Bible reading plan and spend some time just kind of diving into it a little bit more together. And so we have been reading in the book of Romans uh, here recently, and uh, man, Romans is filled with a lot of deep theological issues. If you've been reading with us, you've probably encountered some of those, and Maybe have some questions of your own and uh, maybe some things you had never read before or thought about before or um, maybe want to think about <laughs> anymore. And so there were a lot of different things that we could look at, a lot of different controversial texts we could have dove into. But to be honest, I settled on Romans chapter 6 because I, I think there's a great reminder uh, for us there that I want to make sure we don't gloss over. So Romans chapter 6 is the desired or the chosen text for tonight. I was sitting in my office this week, earlier uh, in the week, and I got one of those memory videos on my phone. I don't know if anybody else has ever gotten one of those before. I have an iPhone, and if you have any pictures in your iPhone, every now and then, uh, maybe to get your attention or to make you cry in the middle of your office day, I don't know, uh, it'll throw up these memories from however many years ago of photos that you have on, my, on your phone. And so my, my phone does that for me. I don't know if all phones do it, but I have an iPhone and that occasionally happens. Now, maybe it's not your phone. Maybe you're like, you know, document things on Facebook or Instagram or whatever over the years and you get those things that pop up that are, that are memories. I know for me right now in the summer, it's always youth camp pictures that come up on Facebook from years and years ago. Many of those have friends uh, that have, that have passed on that aren't here anymore. And uh, brings back a lot of different memories and just kind of, you know, floods a lot of different thoughts. But anyway, 
And the video that was put together on my phone was of my kids. Now, my kids are 10 and 8, and so whenever these pictures were taken and, and, and that it decided to go back and make a video of, uh, they were about 4 and 2, or maybe even 3 and, and 1. And so you know what this is like, or, or, or you've experienced you know, maybe something similar to this, but the video came through. They were much younger, much smaller, and to be honest, it was, it was beautiful. It was, to me, a great reminder of the blessings of God. I was joking, actually, earlier. It was me and Jeffrey Phillips, and I was talking about how if I, you know, didn't have Kayla in my life or the kids, and it was just me, I'd probably live in some like little shack and I'd be in a ton of debt. As a matter of fact, me and Bird were talking about this earlier too. I'd be in a ton of debt. I'd be one of those people who had like a brand new truck, but lived in like a dilapidated house and like all these fun toys and stuff, but barely anywhere to go. And anyway, we were joking back and forth and Jeffrey was like, yeah, me too. I'd have like a hundred acres of land, but I would live like in a tent, you know, but I would have a lake and I'd be able to hunt and I'd be able to, you know, whatever. And I was like, okay, let's say that was the case. But in order to do that, we have to trade what we have now, wife, kids, the life that we now have. And Jeffrey was, you know, quick to say, well, of course not. Right? Like, of course, we would not trade those things. That video popped up on my phone, started playing on my screen, was a great reminder to me of the blessings of God. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I need these types of reminders. I need these types of memories of God's goodness, of His faithfulness. And in Romans 6, I believe this is one of those iconic reminder kind of moments of God's goodness. Matter of fact, one of my favorite commentary writers, John Phillips, he writes this about Romans 5 and Romans 6. He says, Romans 5 deals with the problem of sin, but Romans 6 deals with the proof of salvation. One, the problem of sin, ouch. The second, the proof of salvation. Christ victory at Calvary liberates us from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. What more, what more could we ask for as a reminder of the goodness of God? Our security in Christ as followers of Jesus doesn't give us an excuse to sin, but rather moves us from dead in sin to dead to sin. What more could we ask for as a reminder of the goodness of God? And so this passage we're about to read is a great reminder, not of our freedom to sin, but of our freedom as believers from sin. May we never forget what God has done and the life that He now provides for us. May we never forget, and as Romans 6 will quickly instruct us, may we continue to find these types of reminders of the goodness and the faithfulness of our God. Now, I adapted this outline from my favorite commentary writer, John Phillips. I put a little bit of my own flavor to it, but it was so good that I wanted to make sure that you got to read the same thing 
that I got to read. And so this outline, very cleverly put together, is put together by one of the greatest minds that has ever lived. And so I just want to show you a little bit of why this chapter reveals so much of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. Here's the first thing. The reality of our death with Christ. The reality of our death with Christ. If you're in Romans chapter 6, we're going to start with verse number 1. Here's what Paul wrote. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, of course, we'd have to jump back to some previous discussions, but there is an argument in the church that if grace is so good, then more grace must be better. And in order to get more grace, we need more sin. And so why not sin more so that God's grace could be poured out more because more grace is better. And Paul's like, you are out of your minds if you're going to try to justify living in sin and claim that it's because you want more grace from Jesus. And so he's like, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And of course he says, as all of us would, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now I want to pause here because this is where we find the reality of our death with Christ. This is the beginning of the reminder of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. We have died with Jesus. Let me point out a couple of things that are particularly important. The first one is the truth of our death with Christ. This is back in verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Here's the question. How can we who died to sin still live in it? This is the truth of our death with Christ. We've died to sin. Now, I'm not trying to be awkward or bring up any weird memories, but have you ever been around a dead person? Anybody? Did you have good conversations with them? Did they get up and give you a high five? Did they do anything at all? Of course they didn't, Danny. You're crazy. They're dead. Nothing is more unresponsive than someone who is dead. Listen, you can try calling out a dead person, but guess what? They're not going to respond to you. As a matter of fact, if they did, then you're in trouble, all right? You can try telling a dead person to do something, but can I tell you something? It will never get done. You can try kicking a dead person, but they won't move. You say, Danny, why are you saying all this? Because the Apostle Paul is giving us a simple picture of how our response to sin should be every day of our lives. We are dead to sin. Therefore, we shouldn't be able to live in it anymore. How can we, this is a question, how can we who died to sin still live in it? There should be in our lives such an experience of the reality of our death with Christ 
that sin can evoke no response from us at all. It would be as if when sin comes to tempt or attack us, it would be as if it was going after a dead person. What does a dead person do if you come after them? Zero response. What should happen to those who have died with Christ when sin comes after them? Zero response. The truth of our death with Christ. Let me show you this one too though. The triumph of our death with Christ. Now it's starting to get heavy. Go back to verse 3. Remember what Paul said? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too, don't miss this, we too might walk in newness of life. This is the triumph that we now have. Because we've died with Christ and we've been raised with Him into a new life, we can now walk in victory over something that once held us in chains. You say, Danny, is it because of me? No. It's because of the reality of our death with Christ. Because we've been baptized with Him, because we've been buried with Him, we can now walk in newness of life. Kenneth Weiss, he's a scholar, wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. He wrote this about the word baptized. He said it's not the translation of the Greek word here, but it's transliteration. You understand the difference? It's not a definition of the word. It's just that word's letters transliterated into English letters. In other words, the Greek word is baptizo. We just flip that into English and mirror it and use the word baptized. Now you say, hey, why is this important? The word is used in the classics of a smith who dips a piece of hot iron in water, tempering it. Okay. It's also used of Greek soldiers placing the points of their swords and barbarians the points of their spears in a bowl of blood. The usage of the word, as seen in the above examples, resolves itself into the following definition of the word baptize. You ready? The introduction or placing of a person or thing into a new environment or into union with someone else so as to alter its condition or its relationship to its previous environment or condition. They say, hey, why, why is that significant? Because this is the usage in Romans chapter 6. It refers to the act of God introducing a believing sinner into a vital union with Jesus Christ in order that the believer might have the power of his sinful nature broken and the divine nature implanted through his identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, thus altering the condition and relationship of that sinner with regard to his previous state and environment, bringing him or her into a new environment, the kingdom of God. I know that was heavy. Say, Danny, what in the world is happening there? In other words, listen, this speaks of our bapti baptism in Christ, 
which happens at conversion. Paul is driving home the point of our death with Christ through a personal experience. Now, I want to be clear here. Paul isn't teaching that water baptism saves anybody. Water baptism, as we know, is a symbol of our identity with Jesus. It serves as a seal. It's like when a notary places their seal of approval on a document. Baptism is the seal, the outward sign of the inward change. It's like in the Old Testament, they didn't have baptism so much to identify God's people. They had another practice. It was called circumcision. But in the Bible, it doesn't say that circumcision means you're saved. No, no. it's because of the faith of Abraham in God. Circumcision was an outward sign of the inward change that happened within him. Circumcision didn't unite them. It didn't save them. It was the faith that they had before that that saved them just like today. The word united in verse 5 is translated as planted in the King James Version Bible. The idea is that of a graft being united with a tree. This is the way a believer is grafted into Jesus. Other commentators have said the word united could be used to describe the relationship of Siamese twins. We become vitally united to Christ. We share His life. Paul uses these verses to illustrate that Christ's death was our death. His burial was our burial. His resurrection was our resurrection. He not only died for me, but He died as me. And as far as God is concerned, we're already on resurrection ground. Now let that sink in. For a moment. You say, Danny, these are massive concepts. I agree. Danny, do you fully understand them? Absolutely not. How do they work? Supernaturally. Through the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. When we identify ourselves with Christ, the reality of our death with Him means that we also triumph with Him because we've united ourselves to the only one who could change it all. And now we live as dead to sin and alive to Jesus as we walk closely in fellowship with Him. It's a beautiful process of the reality of our death with Christ. Now remains, it's the unfortunate part, now remains for us to live that way every day. God once saw us in Adam, but now He sees us in Christ. This is why the chapter before this, Romans 5.17, here's what Paul wrote. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more with those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Changes everything. Do you not see the goodness and faithfulness of God through the reality of our death with Christ? We couldn't defeat sin. He could. Now we can unite ourselves with Him so that we too could not just die with Him, but we could live with Him today, right? Resurrection ground now. Living a new life. Newness 
of life through Jesus. The reality of our death with Christ. Let me show you the second one. Some of the goodness and faithfulness of God. Not just the reality of our death with Christ, but the reason for our death with Christ. Look at Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We'll keep going. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Why? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Let me show you this beautiful picture of the reason for our death with Christ. First of all, He had to break sin's stronghold on life. Remember the statement just previously? We could not defeat sin. He could. So what did He do? He broke sin's stronghold on life. This is why Paul wrote, we know that our old self was crucified with Him. The phrase old self is also found in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. When Paul wrote, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The phrase is also used by Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. This is the depraved human nature that we received through Adam. But when we trust in Jesus give our lives to Him, He breaks sin's stronghold on life. He does it in two ways. It's beautiful. One is positionally, right? Like we are right now, though we're here, living on resurrection ground because when God sees me, He does not see Adam or fallen humanity or sinful nature. He sees the blood of Jesus covering my life. He sees Jesus standing in my place because positionally, I am placed in Christ and made right with God. But also, not just positionally, but practically, right? Every day, we must put off the old self and put on the new man. That old man is dead. It's been crucified with Christ. Now, crucifixion can't be done by yourself. It shows the necessity of the hands of another. At Calvary, God dealt with the problem of sin and the problem of self by putting both of them to death in Christ. Now, don't miss that. Positionally, sin was put to death. Practically, self is being put to death every day as I seek after Jesus above my own way. Jesus had to break sin's stronghold on life. I read an illustration about this. It was from Chuck Swindoll. He's also someone I love to read. He talks about his years in the Marine Corps. He said that I was subject in my first years in the Marine Corps to the authority of a drill instructor. Perhaps the most intimidating, overpowering authority I had ever encountered. Anybody been in the military? A, thank you. B, do you remember that time? I've not experienced the military. I don't have as much experience in that regard, but I've seen movies. I don't know if that counts. And so I'm picturing what's happening in this moment. His description is, most intimidating, 
overpowering authority I had ever encountered. Here's what he goes on to say. He said his objective to break the wills of simple country boys and streetwise city slickers to turn strong-willed boys into strong-hearted warriors. That was his goal. Drill instructors aren't known for their compassion. They tell you every move to make, when to eat, when to drink, when to sleep, when to wake up, and even when to relieve yourself. And the consequences for disobedience are extreme. He's recounting what those days were like. He goes on, he said, After basic training, I was told where to live and what job to do. And the Marine Corps didn't ask me if it was okay to ship me to the other side of the globe from my wife and to keep me there for 16 months. The relationship was simple. They told me what to do, and I had to do it. Then, I was honorably discharged, leaving me to no longer be under their authority. So he goes on, he talks about life after this moment. He says, many years later, while I was traveling as a regular civilian, I saw a bunch of raw recruits getting ready to head off to boot camp. And with them, I heard the familiar sound of their own drill instructors barking commands to those future soldiers. You people get in line, a straight line. Do you not know what a straight line is? You stand here, you stand here, you stand there. Right? He's remembering the days again. He said, after a few moments of watching all this from a distance, one of the drill instructors looked my way and I caught his eye and I said, how's it going, Gunny? Got all those wet-nosed kids in line? He looked at me, flashed a grin, and said, yes, sir. I had a great time with him. Why? Because he had no authority over me. He even said, sir, to me. If, I, if he had tried to order me in the line, I would have laughed out loud, done a quick about face, and marched myself into a coffee shop. I don't have to obey Marine Corps drill instructors or even generals, for that matter. They no longer have control over me. Now watch this. The same is true when it comes to the Christian and sin. When we died with Christ, our bodies were relieved from submission to sin. We've been honorably discharged, and when sin barks its ugly commands, we can just turn around and walk away and no longer have a stronghold in our life. Let me show you this one too, closely related. Jesus also had to break sin's stranglehold on life. One a little bit deeper, one a little bit more mundane day to day. The phrase body of sin, also Romans 6, 6, refers to the instrument for carrying out sin's orders. In this verse, the body of sin represents an organized power working within the body. The only way for it not to use us is to be dead to it. Oftentimes, we may not feel like we are dead to sin. Anybody else feel that? Danny, you're saying we don't have to listen to sin. We're not under the authority of sin. We can turn our backs and walk away from sin. Well, you know what, Danny? Earlier, it didn't feel like I had that kind of power over sin. Anybody else? Am I alone? Wow, y'all totally left me on an island right now. 
Though we may not always feel dead to sin, the stranglehold of sin on our life has been broken. We must trust in the Word of God beyond even our own feelings. A certain man was accustomed to rising at 6 o'clock to catch a train each morning at 7. His wife usually saw him off to work. She was a good wife. That was a joke, but you can laugh later. But one night, the little ones had been particularly restless, and his wife was just settling down to a deep sleep when the alarm clock went off. Oh dear, she groaned. Is that six o'clock? When her husband told her that it was, she said, it doesn't feel like six o'clock. Now here's the point. It didn't feel like six o'clock, but the sun, the moon, the stars, the earth on its orbit, and the whole machinery of the heavens declared that it was six o'clock. But it didn't feel like six o'clock. It's the same way with this great biblical truth that the believer is dead with Christ. He may not feel very dead, but that is besides the point. God says that He is, and the whole machinery of redemption declares it to be a fact. Our feelings may try to convince us otherwise, but we don't live based off of feelings. We live based off the Word of God. Matter of fact, the story is told of two Irishmen, their names are Pat and Mike, who found the most unusual turtle. The animal's head had been completely severed from its body. I apologize if that's a little too much for some of you. But the turtle was still running around as though nothing had happened. So let that visual set in for a moment. Pat maintained that it was dead. But Mike denied it, and the argument waxed louder and louder until along came their buddy, O'Brien. They decided that O'Brien should arbitrate the matter and that his verdict would be final. So one thinks the turtle's dead, one thinks it's not. So O'Brien took one look at this remarkable turtle and said, it's dead, but it doesn't believe it's dead. That's exactly the problem with a lot of Christians. They are dead, but they do not believe it. This is a tragedy, for it is the truth of this verse fully and unreservedly believed that breaks sin's stranglehold in the life that once was held so strongly. Listen, friends, the reason for our death was Christ is so that sin's hold on our life could be broken. Can I ask you a question? Do you see the goodness and the faithfulness of God. If not, let me show you a third thing that Paul reveals to us, and that is the results of our death with Christ. The results of our death with Christ. This is verse 8. Look back at Romans chapter 6. Paul goes on, he says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. Hallelujah. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. In case you missed it, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Don't miss that. Once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, that's where it gets beautiful, you also 
must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The results of our death with Christ. You say, Danny, what are they? We are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Death, which was once our enemy, has become the door to victory. And if the Lord doesn't come back first, it will be the door to glory. Say, Danny, why is that important? Because I think we must learn to appreciate the victory of Christ. Nothing on this world can hurt or harm us any longer. Death no longer has victory. We must learn to appreciate that victory because of Jesus. Now, we do this a couple of ways. We do this by looking at the significance of that victory. You say, Danny, what do you mean? Look back at verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. If we've died with Him, we will live with Him. For identified with Christ in death, we're identified with Christ in resurrection. We died to the old life in order to live in the new life. The same mighty power that raised up Christ is at work in you and is at work in me. Because of the resurrection, we have the Holy Spirit to help us in this life. We have victory. That's the significance. But I also want you to look at the magnificence of the victory. Back in verse 9, he says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Can I just tell you something? This is groundbreaking. You ready? Christ is not a baby in the arms of a virgin. Christ is not in a grave any longer. Christ is not on a cross. You might envision that, but He's not. He is alive forevermore, right? That is the significance and the magnificence of the victory that we have in Jesus. He conquered death so that we could conquer sin. He lived so that we can live just as He died so we could die. We must learn to appreciate the victory of Christ. We must also learn to appropriate the victory of Christ. I think most of us appreciate it. How many of us appropriate the victory of Christ in our own lives? This is why Paul wrote in verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now the word for consider is interesting. It means to count, to compute, to take into account. It's an accounting term. Probably should have asked an accountant to enlighten us a little bit more on it, but I didn't, so you'll have to listen to me instead. The word means that you didn't have enough until someone or something made adequate provision on your behalf. It would be as if you had nothing left in your bank account to pay your bills, but then the bank called and said they gave you some credit so you could pay it. Now, I bet the bank's not going to do that, but Jesus Will. You say, what do you mean? That's what Jesus was for us, friends. We definitely didn't have enough to take care of our own sins, but Jesus made provision for us. He gave us a credit to take care of the debt that we owed. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's done. You are dead to sin and alive to Jesus. Friends, 
live that way. Don't just appreciate it, appropriate it. Live in the power and the victory that we have in Jesus. Sin no longer has a hold on me. Let me show you this last one. Goodness and faithfulness of God in Romans 6. Never forget the rendering of our death with Christ. Look at verse 12. We're there. Almost done. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. There's that appropriate again, right? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Let me show you a couple of things that this really means. First of all, there's a, a physical principle involved. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. We must not let the carnal man win in our lives. We must put him under submission. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 9, 25 through 27. He said, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Friends, if an athlete will subject his body for victory, then shouldn't the Christian for victory over sin? Absolutely. There's a physical principle involved. There's also a moral principle involved. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. I read tons of comments on this verse that I thought were interesting, but none spoke better than this. Do not permit our eyes to lust. Do not let our ears listen to gossip. Do not let our tongues speak vileness and untruth. Do not give in to the world of sin. There's also a spiritual principle Involved. This is why Paul would say, present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, your members as instruments for righteousness. Present them to God. Listen, the word for instruments has often been translated in the Bible and other places as the word weapon. In other words, as in a weapon used in battle. At one time, think about this, at one time, we were a weapon in the hands of the devil for destruction in this world. But now, we're Jesus' weapons, his foot soldiers, to be used in battling against the devil and winning people to Jesus. Friends, give in to God's will. Give in to God's word. Give in to God's way. He gives us power and victory. Listen, if a billionaire informed you that he made a large deposit in your bank account of $100 million, what would you do? You'd probably call the bank to make sure it's there. That would be my first thought. You'd probably note it in your checkbook or whatever it is you use to track your account that your new balance is much bigger than it once was. And then, like me, you would start writing checks. Amen? you would start living based on your new funds. Well, friends, Jesus has made a deposit in your account, and you can trust that it's there. Make note 
that you have resources now that you've never had before through Jesus and start living based on new funds. Jesus has given us everything we need, the goodness and the faithfulness of God. I read an old story. I want to read it to you now. That's always hit home for me when I've thought about it. Let's pretend that you work for me. <laughs> I'm a good boss. In fact, you are my executive assistant in a company that is growing rapidly. I'm the owner and I'm interested in, in expanding overseas. Now to pull this off, I make plans to travel abroad and stay there until the new branch office gets established. I make all the arrangements to take my family and the move to Europe for six to eight months, and I leave you, the executive assistant, in charge of the busy stateside organization. Here's what I tell you. I will write you regularly and give you direction and instructions. And then I leave and you stay. Months pass. A flow of letters are mailed from Europe and received by you at the national headquarters. I spell out all of my expectations. Finally, I return. Soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office and I am stunned. Grass and weeds have grown up high. A few windows along the street are broken. I walk into the receptionist room and she's doing her nails, chewing gum, listening to her favorite disco station. Do people do that, by the way? I look around and notice the wastebaskets are overflowing. The carpet hasn't been vacuumed in weeks and nobody seems concerned that the owner has returned. I ask for you and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and yells, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I move in that direction and I bump into you as you're finishing a chess game with our sales manager. I ask you to step into my office, which, by the way, at this time has been turned into a television room for watching afternoon soap operas. Do people do that anymore as well? What in the world's going on here, man? What do you mean? Well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Letters? Oh, yeah, sure. Got every one of them. As a matter of fact, we have a letter study every Friday night since you left. We even divide all the personnel into small groups and discuss many of the things that you wrote. Some of those things were really interesting, by the way. You'll be pleased to know that a few of us have actually committed to memory some of your sentences and even some of your paragraphs. Matter of fact, one or two memorized an entire letter or two. Great stuff in those letters. Okay. You got my letters. You studied them. You meditated on them. You discussed them. You even memorized them. But what did you do about them? Well, we didn't do anything. Obviously, goofy little parody there, right? What would happen? Jesus showed up today for most of us. What questions would He ask? What would He expect of us? What would he, and I hate to say it, what would he be disappointed with? He's given us everything. His goodness and his faithfulness is there. We have victory through Jesus. Are we living for him? 
Friends, I pray Romans 6 is a wake-up call for you, a great reminder, I know it is for me, that God wants to use us to change the world and He's empowered us to do it. Will we live in the victory that we have in Jesus? I pray we will.